Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Welcome back. This is James Conlon, Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. And we're talking about Peleus and Melisande, Claude Debussy's opera. Now we're getting a sense of the aesthetic. Let's go into the last characteristic that we can say came from Wagner, which is the use of the so-called light motif. That means a leading motive. Wagner used it systematically, explained it carefully, wanted his listeners to understand the structure of his operas. The leading motive could be about a person, a feeling, a place, an object, and he used them with increasing frequency and increasing sophistication as his compositional life proceeded. Now, Debussy actually mocked this at one point, but he wasn't above using what he had disdained. He referred to it as sort of a calling card. Every time a character showed up, we heard the leitmotif, how silly, how unsubtle. So this is the rebellious younger generation. He makes fun of the process, but he uses it when he needs to. And he created several motives, and he uses them. And the first one we're going to hear is the beginning of the opera. And I'm going to have you hear it on the piano so that you can clearly hear the motive. This is a motive that suggests a time long past, long ago, once upon a time, because this opera is going to be set once upon a time in a forest with a castle, and here's how it starts. those few notes, he establishes a magical atmosphere. And he does it by using old harmony, so-called modal harmony, to psychologically bring us back in time. We've heard this type of aesthetic already with the so-called submerged cathedral, where we feel almost motionless. And by so doing, seem to feel time as an entity in itself. So let's hear it again now. Four notes. Four notes repeated and varied. That is once upon a time. Now we get our second motive, which is the character of Golo. You see it undulates, but it goes nowhere. Two notes. It has a static element. And then, which in this context is very tranquil. 
but he's going to be able to take that context and make it a very active motive later in the opera. That's Colò. He's lost in the forest. Once upon a time is repeated. And we hear Golo again, but with new harmony. The next motive is central. It's the motive of Melisande. Melisande is a highly mysterious soul. Golo discovers her at the side of a well in a forest. He attempts to talk to her, but she gives him evasive answers about everything. But he senses that she has just experienced a trauma. He invites her to come with him. She keeps her distance, but she goes with him. And then the story will ensue. Of course, he will marry her, eventually have a child by her. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is Melisande's motive. I'll play it for you again. Here it is. It's associated with the oboe very often. So here we are now in the forest. There's your first motive, primary motive. And now the magical sounds of the orchestra. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, Golo. Golo. Melisande. And now all together. Once upon a time. Golo. Once upon a time, repeated. Varied. Golo, varied. Melisande, 
Now, Dante's Divine Comedy starts with its famous first line, translated, of course. Midway on the pathway of our life, I found myself in a dark forest, wherein the right way had been mistook. What on earth am I talking about Dante at this moment? Well, it's because our Golot comes onto the scene and the first thing he says, Je ne pourrai plus sortir de cette forêt. I will not be able to ever get out of this forest. So he's in the same situation. If you're inclined then to read the rest of the Divine Comedy, you will see that Dante will go through the Inferno, he will go through Purgatorio, and he will go into Paradiso. And at the end, he and the universe is spiritually fulfilled, enlightened. I don't think Golan is going to end up with that, but they start in the same position, and that is the important point. I will never be able to get out of this forest. Who knows where that animal who I was chasing led me? I believed I had killed it. And now I've lost sight of it. The scene is structured around that feeling. And then, as Golot and Melisande try to leave the forest, we get a recapitulation of the first important motives. The night will be long and very cold. Come with me. Where are you going? I do not know. I, too, am lost. And we hear Golo's motive. And a new motive here. That motive seems to be involved with a feeling of eternity, but it may have something also much more material, as in the chateau, in the castle, where this family will all be living. Now, I'll be referencing the characters and some of the events of the story, but I want you to go on our site and read the synopsis, because in the interest of time, I'll be able to play and speak much more about the music, and you'll be able to refer back to that synopsis several times. You can keep going back to it until you've got a hold of it. I should mention that the website is laopera.org. Now, on the surface, it's just like every other opera. Melisande, this young woman, is going to fall in love with this young man. She's a soprano. He was originally meant to be a tenor, but then he got cast as a high baritone. So that changed, but the concept was the same. And as you remember... These loving people want to get together. Who's in the way? Well, Golo is the baritone. He's in the way. Well, what's the problem? Well, he married Melisande, so he is now the husband. Golo happens also to be the half-brother of Pelias. So it's a very complicated situation. But we've got that basic triangle there. It's a love triangle with jealousy, and it's going to function as a 
pretty standard bourgeois drama of here's the family, here's a problem, what's going to happen? Now, to that amazingly simple formulaic structure, we're going to have music that is all about symbolism, mysticism, transcendental. It's going to evoke feelings that are way beyond the actual events that you will be seeing. And there's the mystery, because we're going to be feeling that mystery through the music, where we're going to be able to follow a fairly straight line in the drama. So maybe we call this eternity, infinity, or just simply the chateau. I should also say that all motives have been given names. The names have been argued, disdained, taken back, replaced. You don't need to actually have an exact word, because if you had an exact word, there wouldn't need to be any music. So it's really all about the music and the feelings that it gives you. And then you can discuss, does it have an identity? Does it have a, not a meaning, but can we actually say what it is? Well, that's a question that's been going on for several centuries, and I'm not proposing an answer today. Here's another interesting motive. Focus on the trumpet that's coming now. You hear how the trumpet emerges from this marvelous sonority. Listen again. And from within, here it comes. Now, this is, seems to be associated with the concept of destiny, that everything is predestined, that the characters are living out their lives, but there was a destiny there and they could not escape from it. Let's concentrate on the first part of this excerpt, which has a march-like character. Uh, isn't this interesting? Golo and Melisande have been walking through the forest, marching, and it seems that it all leads to destiny. And then the destiny motive is heard. Here's another example of a march and a forest. It's Parsifal, and it has that same march-like rhythm. This is one of the many ways we see the influence, conscious or subconscious, that Wagner had on Debussy. So here's our destiny motive again. Parsifal, question mark, march through the forest. Destiny. Now shortly thereafter, we're going to meet older characters. We're going to meet Arkel, who is the patriarch, the grandfather of Peleas and Golo. He is talking with the oldest woman in the castle. Her name is Genevieve. 
we do not actually know if Genevieve is his daughter or the wife of his son, the king. But we do know that she is the mother of Golo. So we've got already three generations. Arkel at the top, like an arch. All of these names are created fantasy names. They don't really exist. But does that sound a little bit like Archangel, Ark, something like that? Arkel is the great-grandfather. His son, whom we never see, is the king. That's important. And he is also blind. That is also important. Then comes the next generation, Golo, the elder, Peleas, the younger. That's the family structure. Now, there's already a little boy. And that little boy is the son of Golo with a previous wife whom we never know anything about. And at the very end of the opera, a little baby will be born to Melisande, whose father is Golo. Before Arkel speaks for the first time, we hear that destiny motive. And it's going to become a little bit associated with him because is he an older mystic, someone who has wisdom, who understands what nobody else understands? That's the traditional way of viewing him. But then Pierre Boulez, I'm paraphrasing, considered him an old fool. He says he makes these predictions and they never turn out the way he predicts them. So there are many ways to look at this very wonderful and complex grandfatherly character. There's destiny in the cellos. And here's Arkel. He says, I don't say anything. He's been posed a question, and like many sages, he listens to the story, but he doesn't make a judgment. He doesn't give directives. And then Destiny's motive appears again. Listen to the strings. Arkel speaks over the destiny motive. And what is he saying? Il n'arrive peut-être pas des événements inutiles. Paraphrase, that is if to say, there are no accidents. That perhaps everything that happens is destined to happen. That, to me, is one of the most magnificent phrases. And you see how the orchestra emerges and says something way beyond the capacity of the spoken word. Now we have a new, brighter, youthful, simple motive, and it's associated with Peleas himself. Now I want to differentiate between three different presentations of the text. First, recitative. The word takes precedence over the melodic line. It's declamatory. Simplicity and clarity. We can easily understand the text. As the letter recounts the first meeting, we hear the motive of long ago in the background. 
Very subtle, however. Now, halfway through that, we have the arioso style of which we spoke. Now there's a melody, and it can be in either the voice or the orchestra. And here's a good example. Now, that's Pelias. Listens to its predecessor, Boris Gudunov. Subconscious, unconscious, who knows? And now the old priestly character, similar to Arkel, sings in the Arioso style. You see how he goes from spoken, that he takes the motive and he can go back with it. Clearly, I believe another subconscious or unconscious moment where Debussy is recalling what he has learned. Now, we just heard that return. Let's return to Peleas and we hear the same melody. Very similar to Musokski. Now let's remember Melisande's. There's Melisande's motive. And the orchestra can quote it when it wants, for instance, on a violin. There's no text. It just means she's in the ethos somewhere. So now we've had recitative and then a slightly more melodic form of the arioso, and now we're going to go to full vocality, a song, a melody, a line. There are very few in the opera. Melisande is going to sing a song. It's the only time that a song is excerpted. There's an amazing historic recording, and you'll get a chance to hear it now, Debussy at the piano, Mary Garden, the first Melisande from 1902. This is the evocative of the night. Melisande is in her little tower with her beautiful long hair.
amazing. So now we've heard the three styles, and now we can go back to our motives. And then there's a third example. For instance, here it is with the oboe, and it has a variation underneath it. You hear sighing violins, which becomes a motive later on in the opera. In the second act, Peleas and Melisande very innocently find themselves at a well, very similar to the well from Act One. But now it's light and free and airy. We hear the flute. Peleas's motive. You hear this delicate, beautiful scene. You can feel the water, you can feel the light. And yet, there's a sensuous undertone. How interesting. Does it remind us of the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn? Which, of course, pastoral passion, can we say? Sensuous? The same use of the flute and then developed into the rest of the orchestra. The harp will become very important this scene. Now let's hear the beginning of the act again. Flute, just like after Nibafon. Melting into the orchestra. Repetition of the flute, but now it's in the violins. Repetition of Peleas's motive. Now it's in the violins. That's the clarity of the water. And now it goes faster, more playful. And Peleas and Melisande will converse over that. Isn't that similar? To the play of the waves, the second movement of La Mer. But now it's a big sea. But the same delicacy is there. Now I mentioned that the harp would be very important in this scene. First as a decoration, but at a very important moment, Melisande plays with her wedding ring that Goulot gave to her. She throws it in the air, catches it, throws it in the air, catches it. But at the moment that the harp shows us, we see that she misses it and it goes deep into the well. This will be a very symbolic moment. There it is. It's fallen. It's fallen into the water. Where is it? 
You have a feeling something very dramatic has happened. We don't know what it is. It's so far away from us now. No, it's not the ring. It's not there anymore. It's lost. And she says, it's lost. Just the way Golo said, I also am lost. So this is the use of symbolism. These perfectly simple sentences take on meanings in the second and the third degree. The contrast of light and dark play a great role in this opera. Here's a scene where Peleas and Melisande return in the dark of night into a cave, supposedly to find the ring that was lost. But Melisande lied to Golo and said, well, I lost it in the cave. He says, go out right now and go into that cave. Well, they know they're not going to find the ring, but they have a very important experience there in the darkness. So they're in a cave looking for a ring that they know isn't there. Darkness, darkness, darkness. The moonlight comes out. Magic. But Melisande has seen something. Yes, I see them too, says Peleas. Let's go. Listen carefully to these two notes. There are three poor people who have fallen asleep. There's a famine in the country. Now, first of all, we know this kind of aesthetic. from the nocturnes. You listen to the violins. We've also heard this music in the beginning of the nocturnes, now on clarinets and bassoons. But something very similar, nuage, clouds, what do they mean? Do they mean anything? Interspersed with the oboe. Now, here's a lamenting two-note motive. These are the three poor people who have fallen asleep in the cave. But that two-note motive is haunting. What does it mean? Where does it come from? Well, one place it comes from, it clearly is a quotation from Boris Gudunov of a fundamental motive of the character of the innocent man. It's a kind of saintly simpleton, given various names in translation. And he laments for Russia with that two-note phrase, exactly the same notes, alternately, F-E-F-E. Here's the quote from Boris Gutnow. And with the oboe singing over it. Here it is again. Pelias and Melisande. 
And here it is in Boris Gudnov. Another clear indication of the admiration, conscious or subconscious, that Debussy had for Mussorgsky. Now, I'm going to leave you hanging in the air right there. You know, there's so much to talk about, think about, and to listen to in Pelias and Melisande. I think of it as a novel with chapters. So next chapter, coming up. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.